Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. Now, if you like a really good story, kind of a comeback story of somebody that has been through life, has lived, ran into some obstacles and challenges, but lives to tell about it, then continue listening because this is a podcast you are not going to want to miss. I feel like you're going to feel really inspired by the end of this podcast, and I am hoping you are going to begin to say yes to things, to say more yes than no to life. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. Her name is Renee Linnell, and she is a serial entrepreneur who has founded or co-founded five different companies and has an MBA from New York University. Before that, she was a model and a professional dancer, and her mission right now is to remind people who they truly are and to reignite their passion for being alive. I had the opportunity to review her second book, which is called oops, sorry, which is called Still on Fire. So for those of you who are watching, you'll be able to see the cover here. But she wrote another book, her very first book called The Burn Zone, which was a memoir. And our guest is going to tell us a little bit about how she was brainwashed and was in a (laughs) Buddhist cult. Like, what? Does that really happen? I just couldn't believe it. So I was a little shocked, you know, to to read that. I never thought that there is would be ever such thing as a Buddhist cult, but there is. And and but my guess she really knows she lost her her beloved father who died on Thanksgiving Day when she was 15 years old. And then after more than a dozen years of conflict and estrangement, she lost her mother who went missing and turned up drowned in a hotel bathtub. So how is this woman even standing still writing two books and inspiring people is is just a miracle. And she believes in miracles. So we're going to hear more of her story. I'm not going to give too much away, but you're going to hear all of it. The good, the bad, the ugly, the sexy. (laughs) And we're going to get right to business. So Renee, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Thank you, April. It's lovely to be here. Yes, lovely to have you here. So I am kind of meeting you at your se- your second book. And I know that your first book, The Burn Zone, really gives your readers and, and in- people an introduction to who you are and some of the trials and tribulations that you went through that then brings us up to speed with Still on Fire. So I would I didn't read your first book, but I'd love to hear just a little bit more about what was going on with that Buddhist cult and why you almost burned everything or maybe did burn everything down, you know, that you had. And and we'll kind of move into your journey of really coming to embrace and love who you are with all that you are. Thank you. Well, here's the little plug for the first book, The Burn Zone. And so I was in a Buddhist cult for seven years, and I had lost most of my family before I turned 15. My father died when I was 15. And so As a teenager, I was just wondering, why are we here? What is the point? Kind of those big questions for such a young person to be asking. And what I was learning in church and in school just wasn't working for me. It didn't resonate as truth, like that we would incarnate only to work jobs we hate and pay the bills and fall in love so deeply with each other and then have each other 
die. And I felt like there had to be more. And so I went on a spiritual quest, really. It started with reading Many Lives, Many Masters by Brian Weiss and being introduced to the idea of reincarnation and souls that love each other, constantly finding each other in every lifetime, which gave me hope and happiness instead of despair. And then it led me traveling around the world. And I realized once I started traveling the world, I think 50 countries, by the time I turned 35, I realized I couldn't really trust the media. I realized once I started becoming, I was raised Catholic, so I was really prude. And then once I started dabbling with promiscuity, I realized that sex was fun and passion was fun and connecting with another human on such an intimate level was amazing. So I couldn't trust what I was learning in church. Um, and so I just was lost. And Yet I had this dream life. I was a surf model and an Argentine tango dancer and financially secure. And one day when I was 33, I wandered into a meditation seminar and I sat down to meditate. And that's the opening of the burn zone. And when I closed my eyes, the most incredible peace exploded inside my mind and my whole world turned white. And I said, this is what I've been searching for my entire life. I don't care what this woman says. I don't care who she is. I'm home and I'm sticking around. And so that was my introduction to this group. And then she said, in the East, people have these really strong spiritual practices, but they live in poverty. And in the West, people have these great careers, but they're soul sick. And so what she was going to teach us to do is sharpen our mind through meditation and then use our careers, our spiritual practice and bring the best of ourselves to every moment in our career, which would cause us to get promoted, make more money, create a life where we could meditate better and give back to the world through philanthropy. And so like every toxic relationship, it was incredible in the beginning. I had a mentor. I had a tribe. I was always the weird kid. And suddenly I found a bunch of other weird people and I felt like I belonged. And so that's how it started. Wow. So that pitch sounds wonderful. That sounds like something I would sign up for myself. <laughs> yeah. So how, how, does, how did it come to be brainwashing or what was it that something did not sit okay with you and you, what right. was it that just did not work for you in that? And, and just speaking to it because, you know, what if somebody is listening to this and might find themselves in something that is very cult-like? I guess what's the difference between like the cult brainwashing aspect of it and just like a great meditation center that's trying to help people connect to their oneness? I think that it's any time we are driven away from our own intuition and inner guidance. And so what happened with this group is in the beginning, we were doing all these amazing tasks. I had homework, like get a black belt in karate, become a computer programmer, go get an MBA from one of the hardest business schools in the country and meditate a lot. And so I was doing all of that and I was exhausted and I was spending more and more time with the group. And, and then she started introducing the self-doubt. Well, you're not trying hard enough to be enlightened. Your ego's too big. Kind of really wearing me down. And I was giving a lot of money to the group. I ended up, I'm an extremist. I'm an A student. So then I ended up running the company, um, having a, rela a romantic relationship with the male leader. And then it was... I had to clean their house to become enlightened. And I had to run their errands to become enlightened. And I had to sand down my ego and burn everything I own to learn detachment. And, you know, it's kind of, again, like any toxic relationship where it's so slowly over time that we give our power away or that we allow other people to tell us we're not okay. And, and so that's what happened to me. I was living this amazing life, but I was soul sick and I had done life my way for 33 years. And so I wanted to try something else, a different way of being. 
And I wanted to live in peace inside my mind, no matter what was happening in the world. And I thought she was going to teach me how to do that. But she ended up destroying my whole sense of self. And so in answer to your question about what makes something an empowering group which versus a cult, is it's are, are we feeling better about ourselves when we're in there? Or are we feeling worse? Are we feeling like we can trust our inner guidance and our intuition? Or are we being guided away from it? You know, and you see it everywhere. You see it in the media constantly telling us we're not okay the way we are, that we have to change to be loved or to be attractive. You see it in Western medicine, training us away from listening to our own bodies, you know, and, and deferring more to the doctors. You see it really everywhere. Organized religion, you know, where we can't find source or our connection to God on our own. Mm. Yeah. And so when when you were kind of broken down, you know, to that point, because I feel like, you know, this book, Still on Fire, is your comeback story. Like, yeah. okay, you know, I was ripped down to shreds and just had zero self-worth. And then you climbed out of that trench to find it again. So that's why I'm so excited to have you on here, because I know many people are either there right now at that very low, or maybe they have climbed themselves out, but they're just still seeing the same type of dysfunctional, repetitive pattern, maybe in their love relationships, maybe in their relationships with bosses or work or, you know, just life in general. So how did you begin to break away. Tell us that breakaway moment from that cult and that when did you finally decide like, okay, I'm in charge of me? So the breakaway moment is actually a spoiler alert. <laughs> if I tell you that, it kind of ruins the book. But I got thrown out of the cult. And there actually is something you could do to be thrown out of the cult, a cult, which saved my life. The distance saved my life. But I was still loyal to them for three years. And then I had a near-death experience that woke me up to everything. And because I wasn't, so not only had I lost most of my family when I was young, and then my mother went missing and had drowned in this bathtub in a hotel, and then I wander into the cult, and then I give them everything I have and am, and then I burn almost everything I own because they tell me to, and alienate all my friends and loved ones, ruin my career as a dancer and become a computer programmer. And then I moved to New York and go into business with a man I met and end up losing hundreds of thousands of dollars and smeared all over the New York tabloids. I mean, it was just blow after blow after blow. And I finally realized that they, these spiritual teachers did not have my best interest in mind. And then I had nothing. And, and so I had to be totally shattered to the point of, I didn't trust myself anymore. I didn't trust the world anymore. I didn't trust my paradigms of the world anymore. And why was I even here? I became suicidal, but I didn't have the energy to do anything about it. But why even be here? Nobody understands me. Nobody gets me. I'm all alone. This world is cruel, all of that. And then I had a moment where I realized everything I went through was because I wanted to be enlightened and I wanted to be a saint and I wanted to spread love and light. And if I was going through all of that, I had to believe in a source larger than myself. And if I did truly believe in that, then there was a divine plan even in my total shattered state. And so with that realization, my mantra became, this will turn out better than I can possibly imagine. I don't know how, but I know it will. And I also had a moment where I said, if I wanted to leave this planet, I could, it was my choice. What would I miss? And my self-talk went from mean self-talk to really self-nurturing. And I said, honey, you can leave. It's your choice. What would you miss? And I realized I would miss 
coffee in my favorite mug. I would miss watching the sunrise. I would miss calling my brother. I would miss watching the bird land on my windowsill. And so I said, okay, the next day, you're going to do a whole day full of everything you love because it's going to be your last day. And I had a day of joy. I had the first day of joy I'd had in years. And then I realized because I was so broken and my life was so empty that I was able to, I could build back into my life only the things that were true to me, that made me me, that filled me with joy. And it didn't matter what the world thought of me. I was tired of being what the world needed me to be. I was I had destroyed my life trying to be what the world needed me to be. I realized being human is a messy experience. We're all flawed. We've all been through trauma. We've all been through it. And the enlightened version of me was the messiest, weirdest, most authentic version of me there was. And so I slowly but surely started putting in only the pieces that were authentic and building a life that was so much more fun than trying to be famous and rich and beautiful and popular. Yeah, beautiful. So I brought your book with me on vacation to Georgia in August. I read this in August. So we're recording this now in October. So it's been a couple of months. And then I also brought her book. And I don't know if you know that author, but she kind of writes like these love novels. And I read so much for the podcast and self-help that I was like, all right, I'm going to bring Renee's book. And I'm also going to bring just something that has nothing to do with like real life. <laughs> you know, Just totally allow myself to be at the beach and be immersed in another story. But I'm telling you, your book, I was like, oh my God, this is like better than Colleen Hoover because this is like real life stuff and these love stories and these passion that, you know, you had in here. It was just amazing. But the near-death experience, this was the one that happened at the ocean, right? I had multiple. I had multiple. The, the one that really got me back on track, well, had caused my awakening was snowboarding. It's not, it's in the first book. It's in the burn. Okay. So here I am at at the ocean and how your dad always kind of instilled in you that you will respect the water, you know? And when you went, when you were in the ocean, there was like a moment where the ocean almost took you under and there was somebody there that had like been there for you and like grabbed you. And the person that ended up coming to rescue you, you had like turned to them and said, oh, I was okay. So-and-so helped me. And they're like, there was no one. That's yes. the... That's the reference. And here I am reading this at the ocean. I was like, okay, I'm not going to go in too far, but I would love to hear that story again. So that is, I think that's the second chapter in Still on Fire called Drowning. And yes, I'd been talked into paddling out at Waimea Bay in huge surf tandem with a pro surfer who was famous for surfing big waves. And I got scared and I asked to go in and we had trouble when I, when he dropped me off at the beach, I got sucked back out and he didn't notice because he was trying to get this 13 foot surfboard in. And I was being sucked down towards what's called the death zone where it's lava, rocks and cliffs. And, and there was double overhead shore pounds slamming into the beach. And I was trying to swim through that, but I couldn't. And I had been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome because I'd been so sick as a, as a kid and in my 20s, which my book talks about how I got my health all in order too. And I'm so healthy now. But And so I was thinking, I was going under, I knew I had to be rescued, but it didn't seem like it was going to happen in time. And as my world went black, a Hawaiian man showed up. He was wearing swim fins. He radiated this incredible peace and calm. And he said, I'll hold you until the lifeguard comes. And he put his hands on my waist and he held my head above water. 
And I knew I was safe. And then the lifeguard showed up and he helped get me to shore. And it was this big, dramatic, horrible thing. And we both ended up collapsed on the sand and I was sobbing. And the the guy who had taken me surfing, he had run down the beach and he got there just then. And I just said, where's the man? Where's the man who was helping me? And they both said, Renee, you were all alone. And he was wearing the swim fin. Your dad always said that you should wear. Yes. Any, I mean, do you really think this was a Hawaiian man or could it have possibly have been your dad's, you know, spirit kind of coming in through somebody else, but not being your dad, because that might have really been distracting for you. <laughs> it was definitely an angel who, yeah. you know, the presence kept me afloat and I was the only one that witnessed him. And there's another chapter in the book where I was crossing a street in Argentina right after my mother died and a hand pulled me backwards just as I almost stepped in front of a bus and it yanked my shirt and choked me. And saved me from getting smashed by a bus. And when I turned around, there was nobody there. So amazing. Clearly, they everybody wants you here for a reason, for your message, for yeah. sure. So, yeah, there's, there's so many points here that I'd like to get into. Maybe let's go back to the connection that, we, that we're longing for. You know, because in your book, you kind of talked about that, that I think it was one of the gentlemen that you were dating, it might have been Gunner, had kind of said, oh, you know, this isn't quite the match for me. And, you know, you went on to kind of talk about how we can sometimes create these lists or, you know, how we want the person that's supposed to be, you know, our our love and that mate to meet this, 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 and this. And you were kind of talking in the book that you were probably a step towards him actually getting to his wife, you yeah. know, getting to the wife that he was, you know, meant to be with, but that you too were a part of the journey. And I loved how you weaved in there that really all as human beings, we are all just truly searching for this connection and this connection with that with that source energy. So I would love to hear your thoughts a little bit more on that longing that we all have for that connection, but how we can maybe sometimes dismiss certain things or maybe say no to certain people when maybe they are supposed to be a part of the path in order for us to get where we have to be. Yes. Okay. So I realized because I was always the weird kid, and different and nobody understood me. And I learned to hide all those differences, which we all do to blend in and to be accepted. And I think even though there are 8 billion of us, there's a tendency to feel really alone here. And I, I think it's because there's 8 billion of us and each one of us is unique, which means that nobody else can really see from our point of view or, or completely and totally understand us ever. And so there's this deep longing to be understood, to be seen, to be loved and cherished for exactly who we are, because we really didn't get that as children. We were told we had to change, you know, quiet down, don't be so loud, don't be so weird, whatever it was. And I'm finally, so Still on Fire takes the reader through me trying to date again after being brainwashed, after being celibate for like eight years, after not knowing who I was, after having no self-confidence. And then I had this idea of, you know, what the right, what Mr. Right would be like for me. And Mr. Right was not showing up. So he was taking way too long. So I decided to say yes to whoever the universe presented me with. And the universe kept presenting me with these really young men, like half my age. And, and so in the book, it's quite funny as I start saying yes to these young men and trying to get my mojo back and going through these super embarrassing and awkward you know, intimate situations with them. 
I started to realize we really are longing for our connection to the beloved, to our beloved, which is source and a deep understanding of self. And that we learn so much about ourselves and so much about loving and connecting when we say yes to whomever the universe presents to us as a romantic partner, instead of sitting there waiting around for somebody who checks off all the boxes on the list. Um, and so I realized I had to start saying yes to these stepping stones towards a partner who could truly be a match because I had to keep learning about myself and not keep creating, recreating the same doomed relationship paradigms. I had to just keep shifting and growing and evolving. And the only way I could do that was by being out in the world, practicing it with men. Yeah. And I, I love the way that you kind of look at all of these different relationships. And you said in the book that you see them more as a rite of passage for yourself. So, you know, as you say, you're learning and growing and you're entertaining these relationships and you're saying yes to these men and the way that you write about them, they sound gorgeous, by the way. And especially the dancer, I, I forget his name, but Alejandro. Alejandro. Yeah. yeah. I love that chapter so, so much. Thanks. So, yeah, it, it was just, you know, amazing but looking at these as being rites of passage. So what's, how, I guess the question maybe that I have is, you know, I've worked with a lot of women in my practice and I myself, you know, earlier on, I would say in between marriages that I had, I was like you, okay, who is, who's Mr. Right? Who is this person going to be? I'm going to say yes. But sometimes the relationships they definitely helped me to learn and grow. But there was a period of time where I was a little stuck in that pattern of the bad boy you know, of, okay, actually the person that just really was emotionally unavailable, but just felt like, oh, I'll be the one that will make him emotionally available. Mm -hmm. And so how did you find yourself or maybe what kind of advice would you have with how do we say yes, learn the boundaries, learn the red flags, and, and also have a no in there in order for us to get to a place of a healthy love? My biggest key to healing when I was so broken was self-love. And I realized I absolutely had to start giving to myself everything I was wanting the world to give to me, the validation, the love, the admiration, and especially when it came to partnership, giving myself what I wanted another man, a man to give me, which was if I felt lonely and needed to be held, well, how can I hold myself? Is it being under a blanket with a warm cup of tea? Is it saying no to a social situation so I can just be home in a warm bathtub? What is it that those parts of me are really needing and how can I give them to myself? And I think that we're taught unhealthy love patterns when we're children because our parents are, are able to be there for us when they're feeling good and then they neglect us or abuse us when they're feeling badly. And so we learn these broken love patterns. And then the less that we truly love ourselves, the more we're willing to put up with bad love, abusive love, neglectful love, emotionally unavailable partners. And I also think, and I'm not sure about this, but I think that feeling of I'll be the one person to get this emotionally unavailable person to blossom, I don't know if that's us wanting to be able to get our parents, you know, the child inside of us wishing that we could have healed our parents. Or I don't know if it's us wishing we could do that for ourselves. I'll be the one person 
to make this person blossom. I think we have to turn that towards ourselves, but it's definitely a thing, isn't it? That like, oh, I'll be with the bad boy and he can't commit to anybody, but he'll completely melt when he's with me. <laughs> and they do in the beginning, but then they turn back into the bad boy. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think it's fine to be out there experimenting and playing and learning, but we have to love ourselves first which means that as soon as it starts to feel badly, and this parallels a cult situation, it can be fun. It can be in a journey. It can be a learning experience. We love to love. We're here to love. We're beings of love. We can love each other. But the second it starts to feel badly for ourselves, we have to choose self-love first. Yeah. I remember, you know, doing research. I think it was Harville Hendricks that had come up in the research that kind of said exactly what you were talking about. His theory is that, you know, we are, we do have these wounds from childhood and that we will pick partners that will resemble the parents or the parental figure that we weren't able to reach and that we'll start acting out these relationships. Like you had said, you know, you were like, I'm not sure what it is, but His theory says that that's exactly what we'll do and that we're actually trying to heal that parental figure through the partner in our relationship that we'll choose. So in turn, it begins to heal us. So I I think there's something to that, you know, I I would say. And and yeah, you know, the practice of of self-love, I feel like I've had so many women say, but April, how do I do it? how do I start? Where do I start? You know, and I remember my journey, it really was probably similar to yours. It was dating myself. I remember for like a year and a half, I said to myself, what am I going to, I'm going to go and do everything that I want to do with a partner alone. Yeah. I took my first trip out to Colorado. I stayed out there for two weeks, you know, and my God, if my grandmother was still alive, why are you traveling all alone? You know, she would be instilling fear in me. Like, you can't do that. But this was like my my journey of alone. And I went and I visited every place that I wanted to. I went to a great concert at Red Rocks alone. You know, I just did every, I dated myself, went out to dinner, got over the whole thing of sitting alone at a table and people staring at you or feeling sorry for you and just put myself in every single uncomfortable situation as if I had a partner doing this with me and really ended up loving myself, just enjoyed who I was. And I enjoyed my alone time. And I remember trying to transition into a relationship after that. And I was kind of like, oh, well, this is fun, but I would like to go and date myself again, you know, and spend some of that alone time. So can you go a little more in depth too of maybe some of the techniques that some other people are listening to this and need to hear, you know, what are some suggestions? What are some, you know, quick tips if you're on this journey of self-love that you think people should definitely start doing right away? Oh my gosh, it's such a big question. Okay, I immediately say every time you look in the mirror, you say out loud, you're beautiful and you believe. Every time you look at a cell phone picture, you say you're beautiful of yourself and you believe it. And then you start thinking, you know, just imagine if you were to walk into a grocery store and you see a woman who's kind of sad and lonely and and wanting a partner. And then you imagine seeing a woman who is like luxuriating over the flowers and then she's over by the produce and she's luxuriating and how beautiful the produce is. Then she's over by the coffee and she's wearing her favorite outfit and she's just smiling at the people walking by. Like that woman is beautiful, (laughs) you know, regardless of age, size, shape. It's the energy of that joy of 
just co-mingling with the produce, which is incredible. You know, it grows out of the ground. <laughs> like, And that, so it's those things and, and waking up in the morning and just taking, you know, waking up a half an hour earlier and self-nurturing. You know, do I want to take this time to moisturize my body, take a nice shower, luxuriate over coffee or tea, read a little bit in an inspirational book. So just kind of luxuriating in being woman makes us so beautiful from the inside out. I think that's really important. And then I think it's honoring no more self, no more betraying self. So you get invited out to dinner with a bunch of girlfriends, but you really want to cancel and stay home and take a bubble bath. You honor staying home and taking that bubble bath. And you tell your friends for five years, actually still now, I have to be a definite maybe because I never know how I'm going to feel Friday night. You know, I might feel social and want to go out or I might just need to stay home. And so it's honoring ourselves in every moment like that, buying ourselves the flowers just understanding that just the energy we bring to this world as women is so beautiful. It doesn't even matter the form that we have. And it's so attractive. And then the other thing is turning our attention to the abundance of partnership we do have. So I started dating my friends and I realized I had so much love in all my female friends and I would get dressed up for them and put on the makeup and thoroughly enjoy every second of dinner with them and realize that I switched from scarcity consciousness around partnership to abundance. I remember that part in your book too. That was, you know, pretty powerful to read where, you know, you were like, okay, so I don't have this guy here, but look at the women in my life and the people that do want to hang out with me and, you know, really relishing in those relationships. And I love, I'm a definite maybe, I am going to steal that and use that because I'm sure everyone listening has done this where, you know, a friend will ask you and you overcommit or, or in the moment you're like, that sounds good. Or you just give an automatic yes. And then come Saturday night and you're thinking, oh, I don't want to make the drive and I just want to be home. But sometimes you'll you don't want to disappoint your friends. So you'll still kind of go against what you really feel intuitively you need to do for yourself. All right. I love that. Love that. So let's talk about, well, wait, hold on. Before I move forward about the friends, let's stay on the friends for a second, because let's talk about how sometimes people can go or stay in our life when we are kind of making the self-transformation. And, you know, you had to go through that as well with kind of you know, really deciding who's kind of going to be in your tribe and, you know, are people going to adjust to the new you of, you know, loving yourself and kind of being this new person. So do you want to speak to how sometimes when we're on this journey that people can kind of vibrate out of our experience? And I know you referenced Abraham Hicks a lot. All the people you reference, I'm like, oh my God, we have the same bookshelf. That's great. <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of Abraham Hicks as well. And, you know, they will say that when we shift our vibration and change our vibration, that people can vibrate in and out of our lives depending upon where we are. Yes. And, and I noticed the more I started to really love myself, the more that friends who don't love themselves were really offended by me and, and couldn't be happy for me and were threatened by me and jealous. And it broke my heart with every single one when I realized I had to start distancing myself. Because when you think of all of your friends, friends should be people who have got your back. They're in your corner. You feel uplifted when you're around them. You feel powerful around them. You feel like you can be your completely authentic self around them and be safe. 
totally safe at all times. Otherwise, they're not friends. <laughs> and so you start, I started to realize, well, I have so many people in my life, which is wonderful, but some of them I don't feel very good around, or I'll leave the interaction and I'll feel like I should have said something different, or maybe I offended, or maybe I was annoying or irritating, or maybe I shouldn't talk about my accomplishments. And I realized those people had to leave. And I just started turning my attention more towards who do I feel uplifted with? Who do I feel empowered around and, and filled up and nurtured after I've spent time with them? And it's really hard, I think, because especially when you're a sensitive being and extra loving, you want to love everyone and you don't want conflict. But there's that self-love piece. You know, vibration is so important. And being around people who bring you down is just such a waste of time and it lowers our vibration. And I think, especially after being suicidal and not wanting to be here, I was filled with so much gratitude just to be alive and then to have this beautiful life and to have this healthy body. And so spending an hour with somebody who is just going to complain or gossip felt really toxic to me. And so I went through a phase where it felt like almost everybody emptied out. And also a lot of my friends I had and a lot of followers and people on my mailing list I had when I was a people pleaser. And so when I started really speaking my truth and speaking my mind, I, I really offended a lot of them. And that was really scary. And I had to, I had to be demonized and ostracized, but I made it through and now I have a, an incredible support team. Right. And, you know, like you said, it's kind of going through that. I feel like it's like picking out the weeds in our garden. You know, once they're out, the garden can blossom and bloom. And the payoff in the end is that, you know, you have the people, the places and the things that, like you said, are supporting you, your energy, they're lifting you up. And, you know, to me, it's like, it's almost worth weeding the garden for the beauty, you know, to get through that. Yeah. And the other thing that I wanted us to be able to talk a little bit about is your chapter on dis-ease. Oh. So I was thinking, because you had mentioned earlier too, like with Western medicine, sometimes it's pulling us away from our own intuition of our body and how our body really can heal itself. And, you know, you had talked about, I had this revelation too, when I was speaking to a client of mine who overcame some sort of cancer. I don't know if we were talking about liver or something, but it, it was something tied to this and she ended up healing and recovering from it. But I was thinking similar to what you had said in the book of how our body and our organs like change over time. And I even think like our, we don't even have the same liver in seven years as, as we do now. Like how could we still be at risk in some way for something to come back to an organ that isn't even the same organ that it started with when the disease was diagnosed, you know? So I'd like that you kind of made this mind-body-spirit connection and then also wanted to give you the opportunity to set the record straight on herpes if you wanted to. <laughs> okay, so the herpes thing is... <laughs> I mean, I was, you know, totally broken, burned everything I owned in the tabloids, like lost hundreds of thousands of dollars, didn't know who I am. And then finally putting all those pieces back together, gaining my sense of self, gaining my sense of trust in the world, getting ready to, oh, and my body got all fat and weird. You know, it just like I lost everything. Finally starting on this path of self-love and empowerment. And then I find out I have herpes that I got from the spiritual teacher who had made me get checked in every way possible for STDs, but he didn't, clearly. So then that was this crushing blow because then I felt like I was diseased and gross and, you know, unclean and all this. 
And then, so then I just wasn't, I didn't date for five years. And then fortunately, the first man I was with was a doctor and I told him and he was like, Renee, everybody has it. It's no big deal. You know, it's fine. But then this herpes thing kept following me around. And then I, and I just tell the reader about it as I'm trying to have these romantic relationships with these young men. And I, never know how to say it or when to say it. So then I just blurt it out and it's like a total boner killer and it ruins the whole thing. It's so <laughs> awkward and weird. And so finally, this one young guy was like, I want you to go get tested because you haven't had, you know, any signs of it for so long. Let's just go get tested and see. And I had this whole like come to Jesus moment with myself, like, oh my God, I was raised Catholic and I was taught that sex was dirty and sinful and my genitalia is shameful. And then I was in this cult and they told me that I couldn't be promiscuous and that I was throwing my energy, you know, from that part of my body at men and all this like gross yuck stuff around sexuality and my genitalia. And I realized I had manifested disease, like dark, stuck, clogged, shameful, self-punishing energy in that part of my body. And that I had to completely redo all my paradigms around STDs. You know, the, the idea of two love beings, two beings of light coming together and making love and, and sharing love and generating disease in the process makes zero sense. I realized that is a concept that was handed us to us by organized religion. Because when we make love to another being and we have orgasm, we connect to source. We connect to pure love and light. And organized religion wants to keep us from connecting on our own because then we don't need them. And so I went through this whole clearing process of just picturing those cells like pink and thriving with life force energy and really embracing a man that I cared about in passion and love and bright light. And I went and got tested and it was gone. And exactly what you said, if our cells are constantly regenerating, how could they keep regenerating the same disease cells? And it's because our mind is so powerful. Our mind, Western medicine tells us we're always going to have this disease. It's chronic because if we're all healthy, they go out of business. They can't sell us their products. Big Pharma goes out of business. And we all just bought it. You know, talk about being brainwashed without ever going like, well, I watch my cuts heal. I watch my bones heal. I watch my hair grow. Of course, my body can heal itself. And if there, it's manifesting disease, there's stuck stagnant energy that needs to be moved. Yeah. And you talk a lot, too, about how your thoughts create your reality. Yeah. So, you know, like you had said, you had some shame around all of this, this kind of manifested. Do you want to talk more about your your conviction about, you know, your thoughts create your reality and how do we begin to shift that mindset to create the life that we really want, to create that lover that we really want to come in, that Mr. Right, and to create this life that really is filled with joy? I think we have to start with the premise that anything is possible and that the creator who made us would not have put us here to live these lives of despair. We're meant to live lives of joy. And then we see how our thoughts create our reality. We see how when we ruminate on something negative happening, it happens. And so we can test the waters. We don't have to take anyone else's word for it. We can just experiment for ourselves. Like you know, start believing that our thoughts create our reality and then start noticing, well, where do we spend most of our time? What's our attention on? Is it on abundance or is it on scarcity? Is it on love or is it on fear? You know, is it on imagining a future we love or imagining a future we dread? 
And then looking at our own lives, when we think positive thoughts of abundance and looking at other people's lives who are constantly in fear or dread. And unfortunately, through, fortunately, through the whole COVID thing, you could really see how we were living in two different realities. People who were sure they were going to get sick, got sick. People who were sure they were totally fine and not going to get sick were totally fine, you know, in two completely different realities for two and a half years and the self-fulfilling prophecies and all of that. So I just think it's kind of like when you decide to buy a new car and then you pick a car and then you start seeing that car everywhere or shoes or something. When you start believing in magic and miracles and divine intervention, you notice that string of green traffic lights just when you need it the most, or you notice the, the lyrics of the song playing right when you walk into the store that you need to hear. You notice the rainbow appearing right when you're sobbing your guts out or the butterfly landing on your windshield. And so you just start to notice it more and more. And then it's like an upward spiral. Yeah. So beautifully said. <laughs> so what are you kind of doing now? Are you promoting your book? Are you doing life coaching for people or, you know, kind of self-love coaching? You know, where has your journey taken you right now? We're in October of 2022. My journey has taken me on a wild ride once I stopped doing it the way I thought I was supposed to do it and started just saying yes to what the universe presented. I'm an ocean girl. I'm living in the mountains up at 8,000 feet, population 2,000 in this little town. And I'm a dancer and a surfer, and yet I'm, I've become an author. I never thought I would be an author. And I'm a hermit and an introvert, but yet I'm traveling around doing public speaking. So it's like... But I love the life the universe lined up for me. And I never would have found it if I didn't allow myself to get totally broken. And so right now, all of my time and energy is going to promoting this new book and talking about magic, miracles, travel and romance and realizing, you know, kind of helping people see how we're all brainwashed. Yes, I was brainwashed in a cult, but we're all brainwashed by constant messaging that tells us we're not OK the way we are that we have to change somehow to be worthy or to be loved or to be desirable. And so it's my hope that my speaking and my writing is helping to shatter these paradigms and, and help people live more authentic lives of joy and be the weirdo and be the freak and embrace everything about them that makes them different and just kind of stop listening to this media and this constant telling us to fear each other and to hate each other and we all just want to love each other and be loved. We really do. And we all just want to live in joy. And we want to be quirky and weird and unique and do the things that call to our heart. So this is my path, at least for the next year. And then I'm writing another book. So there's three in this trilogy oh. called Twin Flames. <laughs> Twin Flames. All right. So we're going to have to have you back on then. And maybe at that point, I'll have read the first. I've read the second. And then I'll read the third. Well, I just want to thank you for your bravery and yeah. really for your vulnerability, because we need so much more of that in the world and for telling your stories and really allowing us into such a private window of your life. And yeah, your bravery of just really probably battling that ego and just saying, I'm going to tell my story and I'm not going to be ashamed of it. And I'm going to love all the pieces of it. So you're very inspiring. And I just thank you so much for your gracefulness in all of this. And I'm so glad that our paths have crossed. And it was really wonderful to meet you and to read about your stories. <laughs> and I can't wait to read the third. I'm excited. So just kind of want to hold the book up for everyone and not knock my microphone over like I did in the beginning. This is the cute 
cover. I loved it. As soon as I saw the picture, I'm like, I love her. I want her oh, the beautiful eyes and a beautiful smile. So still on fire, a memoir. Renee Linnell, Believe in Miracles. This is our guest today. And can you let people know how can they find your books and just learn a little bit more if they want to find you on social media. I found your Instagram page. It's so much fun. Love it. <laughs> I just well, I just want to say thank you so much, April, for all those lovely words and supportive words and kind words and for having me on your show and for having your show. I think, you know, the more that we all hear that we're all so similar, you know, the world wants us to believe we're so different, but we are so similar in in what really matters which is love and joy and kindness and gratitude. But people can find me on ReneeLinnell.com. That's my website. And I try to be on social media. I'm on Instagram at Renee.Linnell and I'm on Facebook. I think Renee Linnell author and Renee Linnell, but social media is hard for me. So the best way to find me is through my website. Great. Well, you know, I had to go on Instagram to see if there was a picture of this Alejandro. <laughs> I was like, is he on there? Where is he? What is this guy? Because I had this whole picture in my head of, of this love relationship between the two. <laughs> I described him well. Oh, yes, you did. Yes, you did. So, all right, Renee. Well, thank you so much. It was really lovely speaking with you today. And I just want to thank all of you for listening. Also wanted to remind you that if anybody is grieving, I want to remind you that I am doing a coping with the holidays grief support group in November, November 11th with my, my coworker, Kelly. Coping with the holidays, the Cardinal's journey. You can find that and register for that on hannahshealing.com. All right, everyone, we'll have a great day. I hope you had fun listening and I will bring you another guest next week. Take care, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the PAP 11 podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Path 11 TV. Visit path11tv.com to start a seven-day free trial and start streaming over 100 hours of exclusive video content on consciousness, healing, and life after death. That's path11tv.com. And be sure to use coupon code PODCAST30 to take 30% off your annual membership. Start satisfying your spiritual curiosity with a membership to Path 11 TV today. Bye for now.